Chapter Eighteen of Outlaws of Ravenhurst by Sister M. Amelda Wallace, S.L. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sir James of Gordon. Gordon did not answer. He was searching for the stone lost a moment before. His left hand, groping along the floor, found nothing loose but the pile of dry pebbles. His right hand, outstretched and trembling, waited to guard against the next attack of this unseen foe. The man made no further movement, yet he kept whispering, Who are you? Now Gordon's left hand began to creep up the wall, vainly hoping to loosen some small rock. But the stones on this side of the passage were uncommonly large, square-cut, and well-set in mortar. A moment later, the boy's fingers touched the man's arm. Gordon shivered, drew back, waited an instant, and felt again. The arm came through a small, rough hole in the wall. The muffled voice repeated, Who are you? But the lad still kept silence. It was only a hand, not a man, with which he must deal. So he tugged at those clenched fingers with all his feeble might. Speak out. You may as well obey now as later, for you cannot go until you do, the muffled voice insisted. Gordon had no breath to waste on words. He must unclasp those fingers. Thin fingers. So thin the lad was almost sorry he had struck them. Something dampened the boy's hands as he struggled. The man's fingers were bleeding. Such fingers must be weak. Why couldn't he loosen them? His own strength was almost gone. The fingers held him prisoner. Are you of the old faith or the new? I am a Catholic, sir. No brass in the ring of that coin, boy. Well spoken. Who are you? Speak out, child. It is a friend that you have met in the darkness. If you were a friend, you would let me go. Let you go on following, blind Duncan. Aye, that would be kindness. Duncan, sir, you are mistaken. I have not seen him. Nor will you. When boys follow blind Duncan, they go down a passage that winds, winds, winds. For a long, long way it has come downward. For a long, long way it will go upward, though never to the light of God's day. By and by the little boy will find again that the air sucks his breath. By and by he will lay his head down on the moss, and... You mean there is no way out of this passage? No way that you would find without. But there is a way... Yes, yet one so dangerous that it would be tempting God to send a child through it, were you not in need. In need? Would you be here if you were not in need? Aye, in sore need. But answer my questions now, lad. Afterwards I shall give you what help I can. First, the old question. Who are you? I do not like to talk to strangers, sir. What is your own name, please? I told you, a friend. But come, child, you waste time. Friend, a mean sort of friend you are. Gordon never ceased tugging at those clenched fingers. Now disappointment and weariness made him wink back the tears. A friend would not torment me. Why should I think that you are one? I do not know you. It would indeed be a very wicked man that would not befriend a little boy lost in the wicked blind Duncan passage. Let it pass at that. Now tell me, who are you? Well, I guess I have to. 
In truth, you must. I am the Gordon. That you are not. Sir! It is the chieftain alone who is called the Gordon. You are not yet Earl of Ravenhurst, my lad, but you are a Gordon, a small splinter of the Lang Sword. The deep voice grew strangely tender. You are he that was born ten years ago on the feast of Our Lady in Harvest. Sir, but how in the world did you learn that? The muffled tones sank lower. Gordon could scarcely hear the words. He put his ear near the hole, almost touching the man's forearm, and listened closely. All day long there has been the old foreboding thought. The boy is in danger. All day long down here in my dungeon I have prayed. Now, sweet mother, you bring him to me. Then the voice broke sharply. And, and Margaret, your mother, lad, did she live or die? Why, sir, she is alive. I mean, I hope. Hope? You hope? Why don't you know? The man's hand gripped Gordon's ankle till the pain shot through him, keen and sickening. Answer me. Agony, not anger, was in the muffled voice. Sir, I can't talk of these things to a stranger. Who are you? Why do you want to know so much about me and my mother? You are hurting my ankle. It's sore. Poor little one. There, it does not pain now, does it? No, surely you could not speak of these things to a stranger. But you need fear no longer. I have the best reason in this wide world for asking about you and your mother, my son. I am your father, James of Gordon. My father! Gordon caught that thin hand and kissed the damp spots. My own father! Oh, why do I always get things wrong? I hit you and made you bleed, and— You struck only to defend yourself. There is no pain, laddie, none whatever. But if there were, the joy in my heart would drown so small a thing. I know now this son of mine will never make my heart bleed. That is the pain a father dreads, my boy. If you knew the joy it gives me to learn it is my own son's voice that rang out so true and clear, as you told me your faith, here in the face of darkness and danger— such joy is worth these long years of suffering. The Blessed Mother of God has watched over you. But your mother, son, where is she? Tell me what you know or fear about her. What new harm has Bertrand Spahn done? Your own heart seems full to bursting. Come, pour out all this trouble, son. The fingers trembled as if caressing the boy, though still holding him a prisoner. I don't know. Betsy thinks she is down in the dungeon, and Uncle Stephen— Uncle Stephen? You have spoken with him? What did he say? He thought Mother must be in some part of the castle, perhaps in the North Tower. Probably. That is the prison tower. But what reason did he give? Uncle said Mother broke some law or other when she told me about you and spoke of the faith. And Roger took full advantage of his legal right as guardian, no doubt. God help me if evil has come to Margaret. But speak on, tell me all you know. Then the whole tale was told for the second time that day. There is a blessing in confession. Telling the story to Stephen had brought the boy near to his God, and now, when it had been all poured out again, peace filled his soul, though he still sobbed in the darkness, clinging to his father's hand. 
Well, son, if mother is in heaven, she knows all this. Or if, God willing, she is still alive and we find her once more, you shall tell her the story just as you have told it to me and to that saint of God, Stephen. Then do as she will. Forget it. Could we begin to hunt for her right now, father? That is impossible. This hole still is too small for me to crawl through. Maybe the passage you are in meets this one farther on. I am not in a passage. I am lying on my face in the tunnel that I am making. My feet are a yard or two from my home. Cell 8, third level of fire the brazed dungeon beneath the north tower. Even now my legs are cramping. You are in a cell of this castle. That I am. Mother told me the king's dragoons took you years and years ago. They did, but they let me go after six months of rack and dungeon. I staggered home to old Ravenhurst one rain-swept night. Godfrey found me, too weakened to offer resistance. He was for giving me a merciful sword-thrust, but my gentle brother could not quite bring himself to risk murder. Instead, Roger gave me this pleasant chamber for the rest of my days. He told me about you. He said you were a fine, healthy babe, and that he would teach you to curse the very name of Catholic. He swore that Ravenhurst should rise at the cost of the old cause. Gold was far better than martyr's blood. And fools were all those that put trust in God's grace above the favor of kings. Of your mother, Roger would tell me nothing. I had left her at the point of death, and the longing to know which way the tide of life had turned came near to, ah, well, God's hand has been over us. But you, you have been alone here in the dungeon cell ever since I was a baby. How did you... When a man faces life imprisonment in a doorless pit, thirty feet below the land where God's sun is shining, he has the choice of three things which he may do. Despair, and become a sullen madman, brood over his wrongs, and become a fiend, or find some work, some business, which will save both soul and reason. But what work, what business? Oh, I know, you made this tunnel to get out, but that wouldn't take ten years. Would it not? Grinding out a hole through blocks of granite with one small diamond taken from a ring and fastened to a rusted spur, such work is swiftly done. But you have been here in this dark night, you, my own father, here alone through all the jolly days when I used to play with Joel. With one finger the lad explored the smooth yet uneven edges of the hole through which his father's arm was thrust. Joel, ah, that Maryland farmer, Abel's son. Sir James paused, thinking, Perhaps, my son, this sorrow may have taught you some things. Jolly days you called your old life. Perhaps you have learned that there are worse fates than the hard work of a farmer's home. Worse fates? I wouldn't give one log of Daddy Abel's cabin for all of Castle Ravenhurst. Oh, father, I didn't mean that to hurt. Of course, if you and mother had been here all winter. But folk like Uncle Roger don't make home. It's the old log house that's in my mind whenever I say home. And you would be willing to go back to that simple life again? Willing to go back to Abel's? Do you mean that there is any possible way? Yes, there is. But one great sacrifice will be necessary if ever we go to Maryland. What, father? The coronet of Ravenhurst must be given up forever. Long titles and log cabins do not go together. 
Oh, is that all? I thought you meant I must go without you or mother. So, who taught you that lesson? Lesson? What lesson? Garfi has been teaching me Latin and things, but... No, this is not one of Birchinson's tasks. Sir Angus strove to write it in my mind, or rather in my heart. But I learned it, my son, on the day when my treason was proved, or declared to be, before the peers of Scotland. I knew the forfeiture had passed. I saw the execution of Gordon Riven. Then I learned it, and here in this dungeon, when through the black hours I knelt alone with God, who had decreed this sorrow for me. Here, imprisoned by my own brother, under my own strong battle tower, a branded outlaw whom it were a favour to Scotland to kill, spurned from the presence of Scotland's king, here I found the presence chamber of the King of Kings. Don't worry about the execution any more, father. Uncle Roger told me a lot about it. But he used such big words, I understood only that he had straightened everything between the Gordons and the King. The lands, most of them, are ours again, but Uncle Roger paid for them with his soul. So, my good brother has been letting it appear that I am dead. He could not have succeeded with that plan otherwise. Very well, when we go to Maryland, it will be to his interest to let us remain there in peace, provided he finds no means to kill us before we set sail. Such a curse would let him slip into the earldom with small trouble. Poor weakling, God pity him. Now we must face the present. Roger's hunting for you, or soon will be. It would take a month to grind this hole large enough to be crawled through, but a strong man with a pick or a crowbar could take out this block of stone in less than an hour. You were seeking John of the Cleuth when I caught you, and he is the man we need. But, Father, how shall I ever find Uncle John of the Cleuth? I have been seeking him so long, it seems like always. A feeling of hopeless weariness surged over him, born of hunger, thirst, exhaustion, and the endless aching of his wounds. In the excitement of the last hour these had seemed to dwindle, but now a wave of sickening misery swept over him. Small wonder you think so, son. You have travelled on your poor knees around Castle Ravenhurst just six times, and were on the point of beginning your seventh trip. Margaret has sent you by the fireplace passage, safe and direct, without cross-tunnels or danger, but it cannot have been repaired these ten years, since the floor above the cistern rotted through. God's angels must have guarded you, a full twenty feet you fell. If the best passage is in such condition, what of the worst? Yet through the worst I must send you, the wicked death-trap of the blind Duncan. It was pitted to catch men. God pity the child that should fall into one of those holes, there ten feet deep with mossy sides and paved with pointed spikes. And you are already worn weary till your brain must be dizzy. How long have you been without food? I do not know, but never mind, father. The hunger did hurt all day, but I have not half so much pain now. No, you are living on the excitement and the good red blood in your veins. That sort of strength does well while it lasts. But it comes to a short end sometimes, my child. There is a small crust in my cell. I had thought of giving it to you before, yet did not, for it is badly moulded. Still, there is some strength in the bread. Gordon heard the stealthy movement of the earl crawling backward through the narrow tunnel. In a moment, Sir James returned, and the boy reached eagerly for the pitiful fare. Then the earl spoke again, his voice low and clear. 
Begin at the stairs you descended a while ago. Count along the floor thirty blocks of stone. At this point, stand. Scrape off the moss where the roof joins the wall, and pull down the iron ring you will find there. Twist it sharply three times and pull down. A door will open into that upper passage. Go forward past the staircase. Two tunnels open there in a Y. Take the right-hand one. Would to God I did not have to say that to you. You will be in the death-trap of the blind Duncan. Now feel along the floor with care. Count ten stones. Change sides in the tunnel. Count ten stones and change sides in the tunnel. Count ten stones and change sides again. Do this ten times. You will come to short stairs. Go up. You will be in a large tunnel and safely out of blind Duncan. There will be more light and better air if the ventilators are not clogged with old leaves. Five hundred feet from the stairs, you will come into the main passage, which you would have found hours ago, but for that hole in the floor above the cistern. Follow the large passage to its end in the woods near Ben Ender. Go north to the Frith. Follow the shore to the fishing village in the Cluth, and ask for Muckle John. Tell him to come with what men and weapons he can muster. Tell him to bring a pick-shovel and crowbar. Now repeat the instructions. The boy did so once, and then again. Another thing, resumed the father, leave small strips of your plaid along the tunnel to mark the returning way. Now go, and may God our father keep his hand above my boy. The lad's back ached from stooping, his head from hunger and weariness. Often, one trembling hand slid into some black abyss, and you would cling to the mossy stones, quivering. Little by little, the slime on the floor gave place to moss and damp stone. He climbed the last stairs. Air, God's sweet air, was drifting from somewhere, and with it came a dim gray in the blackness. He could see the floor and the walls at last, and before him, only a few yards away, an arch outlined against a stronger light. This was the main passage. Oh, such a long main passage. Did it run beneath all the fields and meadows from Rock Raven to Ben Ender? On and on the lad crawled, for even here there was not space to stand. The dull ache of weariness drove all reckoning of time from his thoughts. One thing only he knew clearly. Mother and father were there in the dungeon. He must seek John o' the Cluth. Something was shining near him. Gordon leaned against the wall and looked. Light, an arch of real light from God's own out of doors, and across that light a branch was swaying in the breeze, a branch full of buds just bursting into leaf. He staggered out into the moonlight. Gordon stretched every muscle in his tired body, then shivered. The north wind pierced his damp clothing that stiffened as he hurried on. Last year's leaves about his feet were white and glistening, the poles frozen. The lad tried to run, beating his arms wildly but the coal could not be thrown off so easily. Suddenly he stopped. There came a long-drawn, woo-hoo-ah-woo, wolves. Gordon dashed up the bank toward the big oak tree at the top of the hill. The lad ran as if he were not weary, ran as he had never run before, but down in the glen three lean gray bodies leaped. They had seen him. He reached the tree, the wolves still a few leaps behind. Gordon caught a branch. It slipped from his numb fingers, and he fell. They were almost upon him. He caught the branch again, climbed it, from that to another. They were springing at him wildly. He 
could not reach the swaying branch above higher still higher leaped the crouching forms their white teeth gleaming in the moonlight then a gust of wind swayed the branch above down toward him he clutched it drew himself upon it crawled back to the trunk and clung to the oak safe no wolf could jump so high they would go away in the morning and it must be almost dawn thought the lad but hours seemed to pass and still no hint of coming day the wind blew fiercely through the wood the oak wood on the slope of ben ender those small numb hands found it hard to hold the lad in the tree crotch the frozen clothing rattled when he moved and a quick sharp pain shot through him with every breath down below the wolves waited snapping at him now and then with long white teeth their red eyes glowing in the darkness where there be a dawn for him at last it came a faint flush far off on the waters of the frith but the boy did not see it he was wondering why the blackness about him whirled round and round why the three pairs of red eyes were dancing dancing and whirling round and round two arrows hissed from the bushes two gray watchers leaped high in the air and fell with guttural howls another shaft flashed the dawning light and the third fell across his mates kicking wildly well sped bolts muckled john someone shouted springing from the bracken three good wolf pelts afore sun-up what's treed a bairn quick lend a hand he be a-fallen there steady easy lay him doon the wee laird o gordon na do o that hold him easy while i wrap him up in my plaid would ye see the welts on his face god's mercy on the laddie clad in rags muddy stiff with cold beaten bloody what make ye o that it be the work o yon devil in the castle and the gordon up and fled to us god's blessing on our wee chief End of chapter 18